Uh, this morning, we, uh, if you have your Bibles turn or your phone, turn with me to Genesis 1. Uh, we are continuing in our sermon series, looking at the book of Genesis, and this is now our third week uh, in this series, and that we have said by way of introduction that this book, Genesis, was the first installment of a five-volume set, or a constitution that Moses was giving God's people as they were entering into the land that he had promised them. And there in that land, they were called to be a people that lived in such a way that they mediated and communicated the good news of the knowledge of Yahweh, their God, to the nations around them. And we also have pointed out that there are similarities between New City and Israel at the time they received this text. It's a time of transition. It's a time of uncertainty. And yet, nevertheless, your vision to participate in seeing Palm Bay made new by the gospel remains. And at the same time, God's faithfulness to you, his promises to you are steadfast. We also said that as we come to Genesis, we must be careful, we said this last week, in demanding the text to answer, especially our present day 21st century scientific questions. Because as we said, although Genesis was certainly written for us as God's covenant people, it wasn't written directly to us. And so to acknowledge scripture for the authority that it is over our lives, we must take seriously God and his author's original purposes. And so last week, as we made progress in chapter one, we saw that this created world was created good and that God likes what he has made. His posture towards this physical world is one of excitement. He is proud of what he has created. And this morning we will move a little bit forward in God's work of creation. And so follow along with me as I read Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. This is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening... And there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's holy word. Will you pray with me one more time? 
Heavenly Father, we do ask now that you would meet with us here in this place. However, we have come into this room this morning. Whether we have come in with great joy and celebration in our hearts or whether we have come in, truth be told, it's not been an easy week for us. There's, we, are, we are hurting, there is anxiety, there is concern. Father, whether we have come in this morning and we have been walking with you for a long time, whether our faith is strong or whether truth be told, this is, all, this is a hard season for us to trust. It's been difficult to trust. Perhaps we have not even yet made that initial faith commitment to you, even this morning. Father, however we find ourselves sitting here this morning, would you meet with us? Would you convince us that it is not an accident that you have seen fit to it to arrange us to be here this morning, right now? Jesus, meet with us in such a way that when we leave this place, we will know that we have met with the living God. We pray these things for your sake. Amen. Well, many years ago, there was a newspaper article written called The Irony of Being Human. And in the article, the author recounted two stories of events that took place simultaneously in the very same hotel. The first story was about an individual who saw no way out of the dire circumstances they had found themselves in, much of which was due to their own self-destructive choices. They felt they had lost everything meaningful, and so they wrote a note, took out a gun, and took their life. The note that was found in the room simply said, don't cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. In literally the same hotel where this young person took their life, strangely enough, at the very same hour, there was a famous celebrity leading a New Age convention. And at the end of the talk, this person, the celebrity, had roused everybody to stand up, lift up their hands in the air together, and start shouting in unison, I am God. I am God. I am God. The writer of the article concluded that that's the irony of being human today. That people in the same place at the very same time can have such opposite and diametrically opposed views of themselves. On the one hand, I am less than human, I am nothing. On the other hand, I am God. Wow, John, what a down or open illustration. But it really gets at the profound brokenness and confusion in our humanity that I believe Genesis 1 is actually addressing here. You see, I I think we all at one time or another, and some to greater degrees than others, have known what it is at some point in our lives to feel really, really high on life. Not high, high on life. Maybe not that we are actually deities, 
But maybe that times when we have felt almost invincible. (laughs) Perhaps moments when, for example, others thought we were wrong about something, but we were absolutely convinced we were right. (laughs) And at other points in our lives, at low and even darker moments in our lives, we have actually felt what we might describe as feeling less than human. Certainly, the Israelites would have most likely, at this time in their journey, the recipients of this text, would have felt on the lower end of things socially. We saw it in the video. The reality of enslavement and the constant reminder that they were nothing but cogs in a wheel (laughs) had been beaten into their heads, sometimes literally, for 400 years. They had been born a slave. They had lived and labored the life of a slave. They had died a slave, knowing that the same future was all that awaited any children they left behind. And in stark contrast, Moses introduces a narrative here, however, that claimed that Israel's roots, their origins were not in slavery at all. (laughs) But actually, in some respect at least, actually in deity, at least at the hands of deity. Prior to this point, the passage we read last week, in chapter one, the pace has been pretty quick. God said, it was so, it was good. The second day, over and over, a constant rhythmic pace until these six verses. And here, Everything slows down. The heavens and the earth had been separated. All the planets and the billions of stars were getting hung in the sky. Animals are coming forth, fish, trees, plants, and then the creation of humanity. And everything pauses. First of all, it's the most extensive passage, the most writing thus far given for any aspect of God's creative work to this point. Secondly, instead of, and God said, for the first time, we see some kind of what looks like deliberation within the Godhead. Let us make, after our likeness. Now, it's certainly too early in redemptive history for the Israelite to think Trinity, But there's certainly something happening uniquely in the heavenly realm for the first person plural to be used. Certainly, at least we can say that the intention and purposefulness to the creative act we have seen before is here and now intensified. And the passage continues as God gives Humanity, a mandate in verse 26. Let them, let humanity have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth. And then in verse 27, the flow absolutely comes to a screeching halt. All attention is here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And then God even repeats what he had already deliberated about in verse 26 regarding his intentions for humanity's mandate. And now he speaks it directly to them with the same instructions. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then when he has done, the chorus and rhythm that he had already employed in the first 25 verses continues. At the end of verse 30. And it was so. We're back. (laughs) We're back in the song. In the chorus of the song. After that extended bridge about humanity. And we would therefore expect God to then next comment on what he had just made. Like he had already done again and again and again. It is good. It is good. It is good. But this time... It's not simply good. In fact, Moses adds an exclamation in verse 31. Moses says, and behold. In other words, look here, drop whatever you're doing and take notice. God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. In other words, the creation of humanity is the apex of the story arc and the pinnacle of God's creation. Yes, it's literally, literally astronomical what has transpired in the previous 25 verses, but the writer intends for us to pause here and consider what it means to be created in the very image of God. You see, for the ancient Near Eastern resident, for the Israelite, they would have been quite familiar with this language, image of God. They had heard other humans referred to as images of God. But not in reference to all humans. In Israel's day, it was only the kings, it was only the pharaohs that were created in the image of God. But Moses is claiming actually that all human beings, not just kings, Not just the powerful, not just the wealthy, not just the well-adjusted or those who seem to have it all together, not just those who make great contributions to society. Moses is saying, even you Israelites who have the idea and reality of being nothing more than oppressed slaves embedded deep down into your psychological constitution, you are actually made in the image of God. That would have been absolutely earth-shattering to the Israelite. And as we grasp the depth of the reality that we too, as humans, all humans are created in the image of God, that should be earth-shattering to us as well, every human being that you and I come into contact with, every one bears the image and fingerprint of our Creator. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis engages this. And there he says, There are no ordinary people. <laughs> you have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals, and this is John Stork adding those in God's image. I think that's what he's getting at here. 
whom we joke with, who we work with, who we marry, who we snub, who we exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, he continues, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Images of God in our presence. Now, we need to pause for just a moment and ask, what exactly does it mean (laughs) to be created in God's image or after God's likeness? I mean, after all, there has been significant ink spilled by theologians in response to that question. And we can't cover all of it, obviously. (laughs) But quickly, I think there's, there's three main things that we get even from this text that helps us answer that question. And forgive me for the alliteration. It's three R's. <laughs> sometimes, I, sometimes alliteration can be simply uh, a way of trying to get things together that really it's not equal, it's not parallel, but you want to make it work for the alliteration's sake. <laughs> In this case, I think it actually works. I think it actually helps. First of all, relationship. Human beings are in a unique relationship with God that the other creatures are not. Only humanity was created with the invitation to be in a genuine, interactive, intimate relationship with the Creator. Secondly, reflection. To be the image of God is to reflect like a mirror the beauty and the glory of God to and throughout the entire earth, starting with our closest relationships to reflect God's good character and his creative work everywhere humanity goes. And finally, representational rule. Humanity is given the command to take dominion and subdue all the rest of the created order. Obviously not in a hostile way to creation, but rather to be a steward and caretaker of God's good creation to represent his benevolent rule to the rest of creation as God's vice regents. All this is why the uniquely biblical doctrine of the image of God matters greatly, not just to the Israelite audience, but to us today as well. If if you are here this morning and by chance, not yet a follower, not yet a disciple of Jesus, I would make the case that you would be hard-pressed today to find a philosophical basis for human rights of any kind. We see lots of promotion for human rights, and I would add rightfully so, but you will not find a robust foundation for human rights, I would suggest, aside from this doctrine of the image of God. That's because a human's worth, according to the Bible, is based on God's imprint as his image bearer. Now, I also would add, at the very same time, paradoxically, we live in a time and culture, perhaps as intense as ever, where you are what you contribute to society. In other words, you don't have intrinsic worth simply in your being human, being created in God's image, but rather based on what you produce. As the Australian-born atheist, bioethicist, and philosopher at Princeton Peter Singer says bluntly, 
Our value, our human rights are all grounded in what he calls our capacities. Our capacities. What is he claiming? He's claiming that our value as human beings is based on our contributions to society and on what we can produce. And although that's not, that's contrary to what the Bible is telling us here, functionally, I would make the case that even us followers of Jesus often are tempted to live as if that's actually what we believe. It's what compels us to do more of anything that we believe gives our life, that will give our life meaning and value. It drives us to get busier doing all sorts of things in various arenas of our lives. Things that are actually often very good things in and of themselves. But we end up using them to try to prove to ourselves and convince others that we are worthy and needed and valuable. And so we feel compelled to say yes more than we probably should because we need that approval of others to validate our worth. However, what Genesis tells us right here at the very beginning is that we all derive our tremendous worth not because of our capacities, not because of our contributions, but rather simply because God, our creator, has simply stamped his fingerprint on us as his human beings. That's the source of our human identity. There's not a single human being who does not have intrinsic worth because of the doctrine of the image of God. We will see this image of God doctrine show up again and again in the Bible. We'll actually see it again in Genesis 9. And we see it multiple places in the New Testament as well. New Testament authors drawing on this doctrine. We see it when James actually draws on it as a basis for addressing certain pastoral concerns he had observed among God's people. In James 3, he says this, "'With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father.'" And with it, we also curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, James finishes, these things ought not to be so. When we slander, when we lie to, James is saying, when we disparage a fellow image bearer, it's as if we are doing it to God himself. And so James exhorts us to instead of being mouthpieces of condemnation to one another, to be vessels of God's blessing and benediction to one another. We also see the language of the image of God come up when Paul actually describes Jesus. Both 2 Corinthians 4 and Colossians 1 speak of Jesus as being the image of God par excellence. (laughs) That is quintessential. That is the ultimate ideal. That's how Jesus bears the image of God. You see, when we look at Jesus, we see what you and I, as God's image bearers, were created to be. The way he interacted, the way he loved. And so we don't in any way compromise the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that is that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, when we contemplate that Jesus was 100% human in that he was human in the way that you and I are meant to be human. 
Not as the world says, but as the Bible says. See, whatever we see, we find beautiful in Jesus' humanity. It's the humanity that you and I, that all of us were intended to follow, to be like. But as we will see in Genesis 3, of course, you know the story's coming. <laughs> the world and the image of God and all of us took a hit. The image is still there, yes, but it's been marred. And so in multiple places in the New Testament, we are challenged to become more and more like Jesus. That is, like the humans we were created to be at the beginning, prior to sin, prior to evil entering the world. We see it in Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians 3, Colossians 3. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we're told, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Romans 8, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his son. When Paul uses this language and exhorts us further and further to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, he's not calling you and I to be like Jesus in his divinity. (laughs) We're called to be like after Jesus in his humanity, his untarnished, unmarred humanity, the way God created us, intended us to live. We have some friends back home who have a little girl who was nonverbal for her first few years of her life. She's been diagnosed as being on the spectrum, and this little girl is now 10. It's not been easy, as you can imagine. Apparently, yesterday, like many of our brothers and sisters, the family had started traveling for the holidays, and I noticed her mom had posted a video on Instagram. And it was a a video of her little girl at a rest stop. They had pulled off to the side of the road. There was a big grassy area, not many grassy areas in Queens. And the little girl is singing and dancing in the grass. Let me tell you, she can sing. She looked free and happy. And as much as her mind has a hard time navigating this world, inside her is a song. (laughs) And yesterday provided an opportunity and the safety for her for that song to come out. You see, her mom can also sing. Her mom sings every Christmas season with a choir at Carnegie Hall. She got her mother's voice. (laughs) She bears her mother's likeness in that respect. And this little girl, when she sings, most visibly reflects that she is created in the image of God. God put that song within her to sing. This is the goal, my friends, and our calling as disciples and followers of Jesus to bear our Savior's image in all that we do. 
that as we come to him in faith and he puts a new song in our hearts, (laughs) that song comes out and we reflect his beauty and his goodness to those around us. And my friends, that is now actually possible. That's possible because the image of God par excellence was willing to let his perfect relationship with his father be broken, that our relationship might be restored. To instead of reflecting God's beauty to a sinful and broken world, he allowed himself to become sin, to take on all the evil, the brokenness onto himself, that you and I might not have to bear it. And for a moment in time, he was willing to not be God's representative of all creation, to all creation, but rather to be the representative of all fallen human beings who place their hope and trust in him alone for their salvation and for their recreation as image bearers of God after the image of his own son. It is now possible because of the cross. It is now possible to follow Jesus and become those image bearers that he originally intended for us to be, to those around us. That's what our world needs right now. More image bearers, properly reflecting the beauty and the goodness of our creator to those around us. And that's how, that's what we, that's what New City as a church has been called to be, a collective community of disciples of Jesus reflecting his image into the city of Palm Bay and towards our neighbors. May God help us in that endeavor to be more and more fully conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we recognize that we are not often so reflective of that image that you have called us to be. Jesus, we pray that you might more and more renew within us the reality that you have taken on all of our sin, all that has marred ways that we have even marred our, that, that image that we bear. Jesus, you, you take that upon yourself that we might have our relationship fully restored with our creator and our redeemer. We thank you that you have done this, Jesus, on the cross. Give us the courage, give us the faith to believe that either for the first time or the thousandth time we pray. Help us to believe it, though, Jesus, for your sake. Amen.